And hasn't God been faithful to us? And don't you think Easter is a good morning to take stock of where we are before God and to be able to look back and remember some things, don't you think? I wonder if your past ever intersected with the resurrection. I know that we're over 2,000 years past the time of the resurrection, uh, following Christ being nailed to the cross for our sin. But in your spiritual journey, and as God has chased after you, has the resurrection ever played an important part in your testimony? Can you remember a time when it kind of just hit you between the eyes? It's part of my testimony. Um, I grew up in a, a Christian home, uh, godly parents. My dad was the pastor of a little Bible church. I mean, I was in church from the moment of conception on and, and uh, grew up and went off to Bible college. I remember when I was 12 years old, I walked forward at a little missions conference. We had little Bible churches out in Illinois back in the 60s and early 70s. And we used to do a thing called round-robin missions conferences. We'd bring in five missionaries, have five different churches, and every night of the week, Monday through Friday, we would have a service, and every night we would meet at our churches, but the missionaries would rotate through the churches. On the final evening, on Saturday evening, we would get together at one church, have a meal together as our Bible churches. When I look back, those are good days. And uh, just, you know, we're talking small churches, 50, 60, 70 people. And to gather, and then one missionary would speak to wrap up the whole thing. And I can remember at the end, coming forward as 12 years old and committing my life to full-time Christian service. There was a whole lot I didn't know back then. But I knew one thing. I knew I needed to go to Bible college, and so I did. I went to Appalachian Bible College down here in Beckley from Illinois to Beckley. That was a big deal. West Virginia Turnpike wasn't even done yet then. And I uh, had never seen bulldozer operators dangle another bulldozer operator over the edge of a cliff like they were doing down there in those days, making that highway an incredible engineering feat. And uh, who knows, thank you, uh, Robert Byrd, for all the uh, 50 states and then some money that came in to build that highway, but I digress. And um, I came down there to go to Bible college and... About the beginning of my sophomore year, I've told this part of my story in numerous times. I wasn't making very good decisions. I um, was playing soccer and, you know, just dating and having a good time, even on our little Bible college campus. I loved the Lord. I wanted to study the Word. I felt called to the ministry. But I was 19 and a college sophomore. I mean, that's getting pretty low on the scale of, of reasonable IQ and rationality. And you got to kind of come out of that, you know. And I remember, sort of for the very first time in my life, one evening after supper, after I had washed dishes, I worked on campus in the dish room, the campus was kind of quiet, kind of had a deserted feeling, and I was walking up from the main building up to our men's dorm, and there's kind of a hill that goes up there, and I got about halfway up that hill, and I wasn't very happy. I had worked in Alaska for the summer out on the Yukon, I really wanted to go back, I didn't really feel like settling into my studies. And it kind of occurred to me for the very first time that my dad was 600 miles away in Illinois and Michigan and that I was in West Virginia. I was 19 and probably I could take my dad by then and I could just keep walking. And I didn't have to return to my classes. And I remember at that moment, and I can take you there and show you the spot where I was, where it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was an understanding instantaneously of the reality of the resurrection. And if I couldn't deal with that, I had to go back to school.
school. In other words, if the resurrection is real and if Jesus is real, then the word of God is true. And then life, a life lived for the gospel ministry is a life worth living because it's the answer. It's reality. And I didn't have all my theology formulated then. I'm still struggling with parts of it. But one thing I understood is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ had changed Peter, James, and John, and Thomas's life. And I knew that it was worth living for. I knew that it was a real message that we hold in our hands. I knew that John 14, 6 was real. Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And that there aren't many roads that lead to God. There's only a narrow road, Jesus said, and few there be that find it, but broad is the road that leads to destruction. Matthew recorded for us. And would you take your Bibles and turn with me to John's Gospel this morning? And we have a few minutes left to our service, and I thought it was a good day to reflect and to reminisce and to remember back on the great things that God has done for us in Christ. And I want to jump into John's world here and piggyback on his writing. You need to understand that when you open up your New Testament to the Gospel of John, that this is written by John the Beloved. This is the one who was closest to Jesus, remember? He was a young disciple, one of the youngest of the disciples. And he was really close. And you also need to understand that when you read the Gospel account that John recorded for us, that is, you're seeing the life and ministry of Jesus Christ through the lenses of that disciple who was probably as young as any of the disciples and who was as close to his Lord as any of the disciples. And he's writing now 50 years later. The Gospel of John was written somewhere around A.D. 85. And so let's just assume somewhere around AD 33. I know the calendar adjusts a little bit, but somewhere around 50 years later, John is now a very mature man. He's been a minister of the gospel. Tradition says that John is the only one of the disciples or the apostles who was not martyred for the cause of his faith. You remember that um, uh, there's been some recorded accounts passed on through history um, that we can't document 100%, but church history tells us, for example, you'll recall Peter, remember they crucified him for preaching the gospel, and remember what he did? He was so committed. This is the one who denied his Lord Jesus three times on the night that he went to Golgotha, that he went to pray, and remember when they came and got him and Judas betrayed him with a kiss? Three times, little girl looks out, oh, aren't you one of the Jesus followers? No, 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 no. Coward and a liar. He denied his Lord, and then the rooster crows. He was uh, full of, filled with shame. Then remember on the seaside after the resurrection, John records it here in 21, Peter is restored. Remember Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Of course I love you, Lord. And Jesus restores him there, and they have that talk. Peter becomes one of the most powerful preachers of the gospel. But at the end of his life, when they killed him, and they're crucifying him for the cause of the gospel, church tradition says... He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the manner of my Lord. Turn me upside down. And evidently they did. What a gruesome death. Well, all the disciples and the stories are fascinating um, were killed. John is the one that they say in church tradition never was martyred. There is a story that he was dropped in hot or boiling oil. 
and burned over all parts of his body, but he lived through it. And then there's a story that says, and we know this from the book of Revelation, uh, in the end, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the last book in the New Testament, that he was put into exile out on a pile of rocks out in the sea called the Isle of Patmos. And it was just a deserted pile of rocks, and evidently they gave him enough to sustain himself. And it was there that he had the great revelation that he recorded for us in the last book in our New Testament. That's this John, evidently. And putting it all together, it appears that that's solid information. And there he is. Now, if you were these disciples, let's just stop and think a minute about what they've been through. And let's just stop and think about some of the things that they must have thought about the rest of their lives, fitting with our theme of we will remember. Think of just what they got to see. I mean, the the phenomenal ministry of our Lord Jesus. And these were guys that gave up everything, right? Jesus said, drop your nets, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They do it. They say to Matthew, a businessman, a tax collector, leave your desk, leave your money, come, come with me, leave your files, let's go. And he does. These are grown men who follow him as their rabbi, as their teacher. It's kind of like going off to college for three years. And they sit at his feet and they learn and then they watch his ministry. But now we fast forward to the end and there's incredible confusion, right? And we're in John's gospel in chapter 20 and they don't know what's happened. And we've got to appreciate the fact that they watched their Lord Jesus be crucified. I remember the first time I saw a dead body away from a funeral home or a hospital. It was, it was profoundly impacting on me. I was 17 years old. I was working up on the Yukon in Alaska, and a boy had slipped off a, a salmon pickup boat, hit his head on the deck, rolled into the water, and had sunk out of sight in the muddy water. And It was a bad storm going on, and they couldn't find him. And two or three weeks later, I can't remember the exact timeline, maybe about 10 days later, after finally in the cold water with enough decay, the gases brought him to the surface. He tangled in the willows. Some fishermen found him and drug him in. They called my uncle that I was working for on the CB, said they found him, and we had been looking for him. We knew his father well. We went down to the boat where they met him at the shore there, and I helped grab the body bag, take him up, put him in my uncle's airplane, and I'll tell you, that just hit me hard. I'd never seen anything like that before. And that boy was the same age as I. When you see somebody die and you see a dead body, you know it. You know it. There's no question about it. And they watched their Lord Jesus be nailed to that cross, beaten to a pulp, strips of flesh likely hanging from his ribcage, just a bloody, gory mess. They had watched the Roman soldier drive his spear into his side, watched the water come out as the cavity had filled up already in his death. And now, chapter 20, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes back and says, he's gone, the body's gone. And here's where we meet John a little bit more personally in in some kind of a writer's uh, discretion and modesty. John doesn't name himself in the story, but he calls himself the other disciple. Notice what he does here. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb John's Gospel, chapter 20, while it was still dark, and he saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciples. I think that that's indicative of the fact that Simon Peter was kind of the the first among equals there. He was a strong leader. Go tell Peter. Tell him what's going on here. I also suspect that Peter had been just an emotional, spiritual mess 
ever since his denial and the crucifixion and just wishing he could relive that hour and that evening. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples and they were going towards the tomb with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and John says, but the other disciple outran Peter. Most Bible students agree that John's talking about himself. Why did he get there first? He was young. Peter's a big old heavy guy probably running down the trail trying to see what's going on. And John was able to outrun him. But we notice when we get there, verse 6, they stooped low, they saw the five, they saw the claws lying there. But John did not go in. Peter came following him. He went into the tomb. He saw the linen claws lying there, the face cloth that had been on Jesus and so forth. And then, verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and say the next word with me, and he believed. Now, I think that it means more than just he believed that Mary Magdalene said the body was gone. I think he believed that, but I think at some level, even though look at verse 9, it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It's all fuzzy to them. Jesus had been pretty point blank clear to them. I must go to Jerusalem. There I will be crucified. In three days I will rise again. Read my lips. Well, how do you get that stuff? There's not much of a context of raising the dead except for Lazarus. But I think that this is when the lights began to turn on in John's brain. And his heart and his mind are starting to connect. And he's like, okay, okay, I'm starting to remember some things that Jesus said. Wouldn't you have loved to have had John as your pappy? You go to pappy's house and sit up on his knee when he's an old man and say, tell me some stories about Jesus. Imagine the stories these guys had to tell about Jesus. Uh, John wrote about that a little bit. Turn the page and look at the key verses in the book of John. The purpose of the book is verses 30 and 31. He says why he wrote this book. John's Gospel, chapter 30 and verse 31. Look what he says. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. By written in this book, he means his account that we have in our hands, the Gospel of John. Okay? He says, I could have written about all kinds of things, but... We didn't write about that, but he says, verse 31, but these are written. I'm going to tell you what these are in just a minute. These stories that I have written, these miracles, these testimonials that I have written are written so that who? So that you, the reader, may do what? Say the word with me. Believe. All right, here's the deal. Fifty years... After the resurrection, 50 years after John ducked his head behind Peter and and observed the emptiness of the tomb, the folded nature of the grave cloths, and things began to formulate in his mind, and he began to understand, still uncertain, still locked in the upper room after this event, for fear of the Jews, when Jesus comes and appears to them. That's 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 later in chapter 21. It's the next story. Well, it's... Right before it in chapter 20, excuse me. And so John, 50 years later, says, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to remember what great things he has done. I will remember what my Lord did. 
And he's writing these things down. And do you know that when you read the Gospel of John, there are seven stories that he writes. Seven testimonies that he gives. There are seven miracles in the Gospel of John, that's it, that he writes, that show the glory of who Christ is. And John says, I could have written more stories than books would hold, but I have written these so that what? So that you might... 50 years later, he is remembering so that we could read it, so that when we read these stories, we're supposed to believe that the tomb was empty. Isn't that an interesting line of logic? I will record seven stories, and if you read these stories, you will be able, once you read these stories, to understand that what I'm telling you is true. He says in verse 24 of chapter 21, look at this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. He's referencing himself as he closes out the book. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. I'm telling you, my testimony is true. I've written seven stories down 50 years later that I remember, and if you look at these stories, then you'll know that the tomb was empty. So what are the stories? You know the first one, first miracle that Jesus ever did, John's Gospel, chapter 2. What was it? Water into wine. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, if you go to John's Gospel in chapter 2, that story, if you're writing notes, is verses 1 through 10 of John's Gospel 2. We won't turn there right now. You know it. You can picture it. He's at a wedding. Do you remember that he was with his mother? And do you know that they ran out of the wine at the wedding feast? And do you know that when they ran out of wine at the wedding feast, everybody knew about it, right? And that the host of the dinner went into a tizzy. He had a problem. And do you know that Jesus didn't say anything about it and Jesus didn't offer to help? But his mother pokes him in the ribs and tells the servants, just do whatever he says. And it's kind of like Jesus said, Mom. (laughs) You see, there had been no public miracles. And and it's really evident if you look at that story in John's Gospel, chapter 2, that he did not initiate it. His mother did. And evidently, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, God the Father prompts his mother Mary, who was still present with him a good bit, and says, now's the time. We're going public with this thing. <laughs> now, a wedding feast is a pretty public event, right? And everybody knew that they had run out of wine. Well, if you look at the details, it's pretty incredible because it says there were five or six big stone water uh, containers that could hold up to 20 to 30 gallons each. And it was for part of a baptismal cleansing purification ceremony. And so after Mary thumped Jesus in the ribs and says, do what he says, he says, fill them with water. By the time they fill them with water, something else was happening. And they're licking their fingers and like something weird is going on here. We got some mighty fine wine and we got a lot of it. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think everybody there knew they had run out of wine? I think the whole party knew it. Did everybody see the wedding host scattering and scurrying the servants trying to figure out what to do? I think so. How more public can it be? And then all of a sudden these big urns and they're dipping and every, dipping the wine out of there. They're not dipping. It's not West Virginia, but they're <laughs> dipping wine out of the... I mean, I guess you could dip at a wedding feast. Um, I, I digress again. You know the second miracle, don't you? This one was the nobleman's son. It was in chapter 4. And when John says, 
way back here in chapter 20 that all these miracles couldn't even be written in a book. I take it then based upon when you begin to read and it says that he began to become very public with his ministry and there was a lot going on, healing the sick and so forth. And on this day in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, you will read an account there where a nobleman, a very important official, came running to Jesus because he had a son, evidently a young son, He loved him very much, and he was very, very concerned. You can maybe, some of you have experienced the loss of a child, but a father is going to lose his son, and he's heard about Jesus, and he runs to Jesus, and Jesus says, go home, your boy's healed. On his way home, evidently he traveled some distance, he runs into his servants who had come to him to tell him, hey, everything's okay, your son is healed. They said, what time did this happen? Happened yesterday afternoon at 4 o'clock. Yesterday afternoon at 4 o'clock, the nobleman says, when I was talking to Jesus, bam, that's when it happened. A credible, reliable witness in the nobleman. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, there's a man there and it says specifically that he was paralyzed. He was a paralytic. It says that he had been paralyzed, listen to this, for 38 years. 38 years. This is the story, do you remember from Sunday school, where there's that pool of water and that they say once a year the waters would move. Evidently it was some pool that had some kind of mineral uh, uh, mineral effect in the water that people thought was healing. But they would say, once a year, you can read it in chapter 5, they said once a year the waters would move and an angel would touch the water and the first person in would get healed. Well, the paralytic had a problem, didn't he? He's standing at the edge. I mean, he's not standing. He, I'm not mocking this guy. He's down on the floor on his mat, right? And he's got his hands. Evidently, he's a paraplegic. And he's paralyzed from the waist down. And as strong as his upper body's become... Whenever the indication was that everybody believed that on this certain day, at this certain time, the waters would move, he's trying, to, he's trying to get himself into the pool, and he can't get himself in the pool, and some wise guy comes and steps in right in front of him every year. And, you know, and I don't know what I think about this pool. You can't really document that it was real. It's some kind of level of myth, maybe, I don't know, or some kind of a, 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 a local belief that that happened. And it, evidently the people who were capable of getting in the water first were in pretty good shape anyway, and they come back, ha, my arthritis is way, I've been healed, you know. So I don't know what was going on exactly. All I know is that for 38 years, the story says the man was a paralytic, and for 38 years, who saw him? Everybody in the whole community knew about this guy. And then one day, Jesus came, John's writing 50 years later. Pappy, tell me the one about the guy who was paralyzed for 38 years. Oh, that's a great story. The whole town knew that he was paralyzed. Everybody knew about this guy. They would help him out a little bit once in a while. Sometimes kids would make fun of him and throw stones at him. And when Jesus came, he said, kind of a dumb question, but I don't think Jesus asked dumb questions. But he looks at the man and he says, Do you want to be healed? Uh, Let me pray about that one. Yes, Jesus, I want to be healed. Then stand up and walk. Let's go. Bam. Well, he was healed. We move on. That's the third story that John tells. The fourth one is, is much more better known because of the little boy who's not really the hero in the story, but he's the one who facilitated uh, Jesus being the hero in the story. Remember, Jesus is teaching, and he's got 5,000 people out in front of him. Actually, the text says, if you read it closely, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, he was teaching away from the communities. People had found him, and they had been bringing their sick to him. He had been teaching them. And it was the end of the day. They hadn't eaten all day. And it says there were 5,000 men 
Some Bible students believe that if you add the women and children that were likely to be there, there would have been up to 20,000 people there gathered around out in this rural area where there was no food available. And then one of the disciples, was it uh, um, Thomas or somebody, or um, I forgot, I didn't write it down, to bring him his lunch and said, Jesus, I got this little boy, he's got a lunch. He's got five loaves and two fish. Ooh. You remember the end of the story, don't you? Yeah, 12 baskets left over. Who knows well, how it happened, but there's thousands of people who were hungry. And did they know they were hungry? They absolutely knew they were hungry. And did they know that they ate their fill that evening as the disciples passed the baskets? And did they know about the 12 baskets left over? It's likely. And I suspect that Jesus, you know, I always used to picture Jesus taking that bread and he's filling the basket. Got to hurry, it's getting dark. Got to hurry. I, I don't know, somehow he must have just filled the baskets, right? Kabam. It's no problem. The, the fifth story happens right after that, that evening. The disciples take off in their boat across the Sea of Galilee, and then Jesus comes walking on the water. The sixth one is perhaps one of my favorite stories in all of the New Testament. And this is a profound reality. It's the man who was born blind and all of his life had sat beside the road there. It's the one where the disciples say at the beginning of the story of John's Gospel, chapter 9, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because in their mind, somebody must have done something wrong to come up with such a bad issue as having a baby born blind. And you know what Jesus says? And I take it this guy is like 35, 40 years old at the time this happens. And Jesus says, nobody sinned. He is sitting here so that the glory of God may be known today. What? A baby was born blind and parents wept at its birth when they realized it. And they raised that baby the best they could. They died. He ends up living a beggar's life on the side of the road, stone blind in that community for how many decades so that one day Jesus the Messiah could walk by and show everybody that he was Jesus the Messiah? At first you think that's terrible. On the other hand, I'd really kind of almost like to be that guy. Can you imagine? Well, the Pharisees go into high gear. It was the Sabbath. You can't do something like that on the Sabbath. You're not, that's like work and it's blast, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus is just like, they talk to the man. Are you the man? Yes, I'm the man. Jesus did it. He did it. Jesus. All this talk. The whole community knew exactly who the blind man was, how long he had been blind, and the moment that he could see. The last one is perhaps the most well-known. And number seven is John's gospel in chapter 11, and that's his buddy Lazarus. Remember his dear friends, Mary and Martha, their brother was sick. They send for their Lord Jesus. He comes. He stands by the tomb. The sisters are kind of accusing Jesus that if he had just come, his life would have been saved. He delayed. He already told his disciples, nah, it's okay. You're going to see. He's going to tell them. You read the story. We're not going yet because when we get there, you're going to see the glory of God. He waited to let Lazarus die stood by his tomb. In his humanity, he wept. Then he gives those incredible instructions, roll back the stone. That's when he gets the response that they spoke in the King James back then. Lord, no, he stinketh. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come, 
come to me, come forth. There was no denying it, and the whole community followed him around from then on, and we even have testimony later in the stories that they followed Jesus around because they were hoping he might raise another dead guy from the dead. They knew it was true. All right, so here's John writing seven stories. Those are the seven miracles that take place in John's gospel. Fifty years after he looked at that empty tomb and he believed, he is remembering. He was humming. I will remember. I will remember the things he has done. And he says, if you look at these, you will believe. What is it about these miracles? What is it about these miracles? That we're supposed to look at them and we're supposed to see evidence that the empty tomb is a credible thing to believe in. I'm not 100% sure I have it straight, but I was thinking about that. And I think John clearly says, John 20, verse 31, these are written so that you might believe. First of all, I would like to say, I think these seven miracles are all, number one, they are all very remarkable, don't you think? There's in every one of these miracles, there's no explanation that could be plausible other than Jesus was there and it happened. And they all happened in that kind of a context. Nobody could say, oh, you know, the local liquor truck broke down out in front of the wedding and then they got more to drink and they were able to help the party out. No, it was all clear and it was remarkable and it was clear. There was no other plausible explanation, which gives me my second point about each one of these. They are irrefutable. If they could have been refuted, they would have been refuted. Because every one of them were the kind of thing that if it was a hoax, there's no way the story could have lasted. Guy was 38 years. The guy was lame. Decades. The guy was blind. Everybody knew him. The whole community knew him. It was easy to document this stuff. So I think on the one hand, they're very remarkable and they all point to Jesus. And John wants you to see that. Okay? If you're stunned by an empty tomb, look at these stories and let me show you what he already did. This guy could walk on water. This guy could tell a lame man who is lame for 38 years to get up and walk. This guy could say, roll back the stone and say, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. In other words, we're supposed to read John's stories and we are supposed to be awed. And it says in most of the stories that his glory was demonstrated and the people around him believed. You're supposed to see the fact that Jesus was not like Muhammad. He was not like Sun Young Moon. He was not like Buddha. He was not like Confucius. He was not like anybody else who's ever led a religious group He could do things that none of them could do. They were remarkable. They were irrefutable. And John wants us to know that his testimony is reliable. Number three, that's John 21, 24. I'm telling you, these things are true. It's kind of like putting in your face. Go ahead and show me I'm wrong. I was there for one thing. I'm telling you the truth. And the other thing, every one of these things happened in the kind of context that even 50 years later, it was probably likely you could go find people who were there who could bear testimony of it. He wants us to know that Jesus is believable. He wants us to know that 
The real miracle here would be that if Jesus stayed dead. He wants us to know that salvation is available today through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thomas represents so well so many of us, and you know that part of the story, letting your eyes glance at chapter 20. Jesus had already appeared to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas said, I'll only believe if I touch him. Jesus comes back, appears to him. Thomas, touch me. Thomas believes. Transformed the lives of the disciples. John says, look at these stories, these irrefutable evidences that when you believe these, you will know and believe that Jesus is who he says. So we end today as we have been with John on a journey of remembrance. John remembered seven specific miracles that he took the time to record for us so that we would believe. And then we find out that in throughout all of John's gospel, the word believe is a key word. Let's end with a verse, John three thirty six, and let's remind ourselves how important and crucial it is that we react to the resurrection today and that we not just go home and, and fill ourselves with ham and chocolate Easter bunnies. Oh, yeah, I want one too. That's what it's all about. John chapter 3, verse 36. Look at this verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Look at that. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's a good thing. It means go to heaven. It means all kinds of things when we study our Bibles. But look at the second part of it. He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You know why it says remains on him? Because all of us are born with the wrath of God hanging over our head. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. We're all guilty. And the only way we can get unguilty is to have somebody come and pay our penalty for us. And that's what Jesus did that was demonstrated on the video when he went to the cross. And he was the ultimate perfect sacrificial lamb who substituted in on our behalf so that we could come and look at the empty tomb today and look at him and understand that he paid the penalty for our sin and we could believe in the Son, S-O-N, and have eternal life. That's why when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And look at the next part. And no one comes unto the Father except through me. That is an exclusive claim, my friend. And the only way that you can have the credibility to make a statement like that is to point to the empty tomb and say, there it is. And the disciples saw him. It transformed their lives. 500 saw him. We look at the miracles. It shouldn't amaze us that there's an empty tomb. When you study John's miracles, oh, it's it's no wonder the tomb is empty. There it is. So when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Who do you see? Where are you this afternoon, my friend, as we head home on Easter afternoon? And the Lord's blessed us with a quiet and calm community and feasts to partake of together. Have you run to the tomb and did you find it empty and did you believe? 
I know many of you have. He says, believe. Paul, Paul put it this way in Romans 10 and verse 9 and 10. He said, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that is that he's the Messiah and that he has come from God. If you believe in your heart that that's who he was and that God, what, raised him from the dead, you know that he was deity. You will be saved. You see, when God raised him from the dead, Romans 1.4 says that that proclaimed him with power to be the son of God. It authenticated him and his message. What have you done with Jesus? I wonder if there's any skeptics in our audience today, maybe atheists. We welcome you to our service today. We are, we are open followers of Jesus Christ, and we believe he was God. And we're not embarrassed by that because of the empty tomb, and I trust that you will process this yourself today. And that John 3.36, that you will believe in the Son today, and that you will have eternal life. Shall we bow our heads, please? I want to speak specifically to the person that is uncertain of their spiritual destiny and their eternal life following this life. Do you believe that Jesus was the Christ? Do you believe John's testimony was accurate? Was it convincing? He says you're supposed to study it and believe. And you're supposed to believe in this Son of God who took your sin to the cross. I have no difficulty believing that everybody in this room except perhaps some kind of a exceptionally arrogant person would not agree that we have sin issues all of us we're sinners what are you going to do about that sin that's what keeps us from heaven in the presence of a holy god and that's why jesus came and died on the cross and then he was buried and then he rose again to authenticate his message so that we can have life and this is something you can't get any other way than just by believing isn't that amazing and believing a word it means to trust or to have faith i have all my confidence in the fact that jesus was who he said he was and i believe that he was the son of god and i believe that god raised him from the dead and i believe that he paid the price of my sin you will be saved this is something that has to happen between you and God. What a wonderful time it would be on Easter to, to bear testimony to the fact that God has opened your eyes to the truth and he's made you his child. How do you believe? You believe, putting your trust in it. Listen to the still small voice of the Spirit in you today. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that God raised him from the dead? You'll be saved. going to sing a hymn in a minute, and if you'd like to come forward and meet with a counselor, pray with somebody just to make sure you know you're saved, maybe to ask a few more questions. We'd love to help you this Easter day. Don't be embarrassed to get out of your seat and come forward. But ultimately, this is between you and God in the privacy of your own heart and mind. He's the Christ. He died on the cross for your sin. Will you admit your sinfulness today? Put your faith and trust in him. Father, thank you for these great stories and thank you for the confidence we have as we look at your word today and that we have such reliable information and so irrefutable and, and yet so many people don't believe even though somebody has come back from the dead to tell them the truth. 
So, Father, thank you for the risen Lord today. I pray that you would convict hearts and open minds and draw people unto yourself so that someday we'll look back and we'll remember how our lives, our story, intersected with the resurrection this Easter, and you changed us because of it. Commit each individual to you, Lord, to accomplish your purpose in them today. In Jesus' name.